0: Well, good morning, church. How are we all doing this morning? Yeah are we Are we doing well? Okay, good. Sometimes I'm wondering, did we did we uh, you know, I know the rest of the country experienced daylight savings time yesterday, but we didn't, but maybe I'm wondering if we are experiencing some of the leftover of daylight savings time. so because um, everyone else lost an hour, but you know what? We didn't lose a thing. Amen? Yeah. We didn't lose a thing. I love it. It's great to see all of you this morning, all of you online as well. Love you all. And um, we are continuing this morning in our series called Identity in Christ. And um, I don't know if you've noticed subtly, obviously, the little artwork up here kind of highlighting that series. Um, And so we are spending a good bulk of the year in this series. And I want to share with you why we're doing that. Why? the lay elders and the pastors felt that um, we should spend a good bulk of this year looking at who we are in Jesus Christ. Uh, I think we know this, but let me just say this nonetheless, is that we are people who have to be defined. And there are oftentimes maybe two ways in which we are defined. Either we let others and things around us define us or we in or we define ourselves beyond simply the people or things around us. So one is either intentionally defined, defining ourselves, or we let others or other things define us. Either way, we are defined. In fact, in some ways, I heard this early on in ministry that whenever we encounter someone that we are meeting for the very first time, that the person that we're encountering and probably vice versa we are encountering as well within the first two minutes We've made up our mind about who they are and vice versa And after that we either spend the rest of our time in that relationship either living up to that expectation or definition or trying to change it How's that for a comforting thought? Right? How's that for a comforting thought? Um, it, it, it's It's real brothers and sisters, it's real in the way that, that we are defined. And so here's the other reason why I think identity and for us spending this bulk of this year in this series is because what defines us, we tend to worship. What defines us, we tend to worship. And that is because whatever gives us worth, we worship. So if we are defined by our job, Chances are you will probably find someone who will probably worship their job If we are defined by our family, then chances are we are going to kind of worship our family If we are defined by our spouse, then chances are we will probably worship our spouse and in fact there is some theological belief and some and I kind of believe it some theological standing for that idea uh Genesis 3 verse 16 I don't have it don't worry about it uh so you you don't have to show it on the screen you just have to trust me on this okay church trust me it's in the Bible um some of you are looking it up thank you very much for making sure my work is uh is accurate and true um it's the fall, and Adam and Eve have fallen, and now God is giving them the the consequences of their fallenness. And it's really interesting that in part of the fallenness, obviously the the you know Adam is now going to have to till the land; it's going to grow weeds; it's going to be much harder to cultivate, all that kind of stuff. But he says to the woman, he says to Eve this: to the woman he said, "I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth." No duh. Okay, um, that's not what I'm going to focus on. And in you. In pain, you shall deliver children. Now, here's the part i want to focus on. It says this. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Some theologians... <laughs> can't, couldn't help it, could you? Some theologians believe that what that may mean is that women have now supplanted their husbands in place of God. That they will now let their husbands define them rather than God define them. In other words, they will want to now let their husbands rule over them and define who they are. And by the way, ladies, you may be thinking, oh, heck no. Let me just say this. Men have been all too willing to obligate and go along with that one. And in fact, let me just go a step further and, and maybe step on some toes in doing so. And that be be more for my brothers and sisters who are complementary in nature. Nothing wrong with complementarianism. And if you don't know what that is, that's okay. Um, complementarianism is a wonderful thing and it's beautiful. However, it can also be exploited. And all of a sudden now, we have seen some of this come out in churches, well-known churches. In fact, just this past week, it breaks my heart. A brethren church, not here, um, in another country that's close to us, um, a well-known brethren church, the pastor there recently confessed to some, some sexual impropriety, if you will, and has now, And that church is dealing with the fallout of that. It's one of the biggest churches in this country, not this country, the country where it's in. Um, is that it, it, men have been, whether knowingly or unknowingly, have been all too willing to subject women to subject women to second-class citizenship. All too willing. And ladies, you might have been all too willing or have not known any better to allow yourself to be subjecticated, if that's a word. You you know what I'm saying, right? (laughs) Go on the idea, not on the literalness of what I'm saying. And I'm just making up new words as I go along because there are two things that work in my favor. One is the English language is dynamic. We make up new words all the time. 20 years ago, Twitter didn't exist as a language. Facebook was just on the horizon. And here's the other thing that works in my language, or in, in my favor, is that not only is language dynamic, but, think, but new words get made up all the time, and I can make up new words anytime I want to. Um, being defined is absolutely essential. And if we're not careful... We might let other people or other things define us. And in return, we might be tempted to worship those things or those individuals. Timothy Keller, a pastor and theologian, said this. He said the following. Our need for worth is so powerful that whatever we base our identity and value on, we essentially deify. That is, turn into a God. We will look to it with all the passion and intensity of worship and devotion even if we think ourselves as highly irreligious. Do you want to know how designed we are to worship? Even those who aren't believers worship. They just don't know it. Or worse, they won't admit it. We are designed for worship. And if we aren't careful, if what we allow to define us, we will, chances are, worship. And that could be incredibly misleading, wrong, destructive, and wounding. Are you with me? Does that make sense? So this in many ways is why we are going to spend the bulk of the year really diving into the scriptures to look at the scriptures and understand who we are in Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but as I've been going through preparing for this series, it is a beautiful picture that I would... I want Jesus to define me more than anything or anyone else to define me. And that's for obvious reasons. But let me just say them anyways. Because you know why? Because he created me. He knows me better than I know myself. And I would rather have the maker of myself and the maker of this universe define who I am than anyone or anything else that is trying to do that very thing. That's why we need to root ourselves in who Jesus says we are. I think, and if you're like me, brothers and sisters, I think it's tempting, and maybe you have fallen into it like I have, that I have allowed other things and other people to define me. Uh, Confession time. Um, One of the things I never that I am that I am scared of, uh, maybe the right phrase uh, is this: I don't want anyone to think that I'm stupid. Um, when I was in grade school, they there was a point at which they thought maybe I should go into s- some sort of remedial classes, and I said to myself, "Oh no!" And I worked my tail off to show them, "Oh no, I can do this," and I did. Never went into that stuff, and I've been working, trying to say, "Oh no, I will not be defined by that." Some of us might allow others to define us and to say things like, "Well, you're not worthy." To say things like, um, you just don't quite measure up. There are others that maybe say really good things, and that's wonderful. But there might be others who say things about us and to us that are trying to ascribe worth to us, and you know what? We buy into it. It is said, and I don't know if there's any uh, you know, studies done on this, but certainly in my time in youth ministry, this was certainly seemed to be true. For every negative comment that is shared to you or given to you, It takes at least 10 plus positive comments to try to overcome it. Do you ever notice that that it's the negative comments that we tend to focus on more than the positive ones? We could have all of these big positive comments, but it's the one negative one that we will spend our time brooding over. Isn't that amazing? So with that in mind, I want to just share a little bit. How do we as Americans, for instance, define ourselves? And it's very telling. A survey was done a few years ago, and it said this. More Americans mentioned that, guess what? Being a parent, 25%, was the highest by how Americans define themselves. That's great. I'm a parent. I'm a father. I'm a mother. I am a parent. 25%. Others said intelligent, 12%, their job, 11%, compassionate, 11%, a husband, 10%, kind, 10%, trustworthy, 10%, a wife, 8%, a friend, 8%, hardworking, 8% of those said that, and honest, 8%. Now, here's the good news. Here's the good news out of this survey. Very few people said that politics defined them. Amen? I am not a Republican or a Democrat. That's not what defines me. Amen. Here's the bad news. (laughs) Here's the bad news. Very few people said that their identity was in Jesus Christ. 8% said Christian. Fewer said religious or spiritual, about 2%. Child of God, only 2% said that. Or blessed, 1%. that's hard. That's really hard. So I, I don't know about you, but in this little microcosm of Americanism here in this place, in this little microcosm of society that we have here gathered here this morning and hopefully for time going forward, I, I want to flip the script on that survey. I want to walk hopefully out of here for us saying that we are defined by Jesus Christ that we are a child of God, that we are blessed. I want to flip the script. I really do. And that's my hope as we go through this series, is that we can begin to really root ourselves into who we are in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we continue on, and Pastor Eric started this series and we're going to continue on this morning, uh, we're going to take a look at this idea, and this truth that you and I are Christ-minded. You and I are Christ-minded. And I'm going to flesh that out as to what I mean by that, but more importantly, why we are Christ-minded. And to help us today is we're going to take a look at a passage that Eric touched on last week. And I'm going to touch on it again this week. But I'm going to go and preach on the whole passage because why not? Um. So we're going to take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to take a look at verses 1 through 16, and we're going to take a look at what I think are three big reasons why we can, and for those of us who are followers of Jesus, have the mind of Christ. Why we can think like Jesus. And there are three big reasons, and as we go through these reasons, it's going to be in reverse order okay? It's going to be in reverse order. What I think should have been the last reason is the first reason. And what I thought should be the first reason is the last reason. Why did I do it that way? Because Paul wrote it that way. He's the one who's to blame, not me. This is Paul's thought, which is still genius, by the way, Paul's thought. So anyways, let's start off with reason number one of why we can have the mind of Christ. And it's this, you and I can tell others what God thinks. You and I can tell others what God thinks. Now, here's what Paul writes in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, beginning verse 1. He says this, and by the way, he's writing to a church in Corinth that he planted. The church is about seven years old, so it's a fairly young church. It's a church that is um, experiencing some tension, shall we say. Some uh, growing pains as they not only grow in maturity themselves individually in Christ, but also as a church collectively. Okay? They're experiencing some of this stuff. And how did Paul know that? Someone told on them. Someone wrote to Paul and said, Hey, Paul, there is some stuff going on in the church in Corinth. Here's what's happening. Someone ratted them out. Okay? And so Paul is writing to help this church, a church he planted. And he writes the following. And when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come as someone superior in speaking ability or wisdom, as I proclaim to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I also was with you in weakness and fear and in great trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of mankind, but rather on the power of God. Paul... If you did not realize this, and we don't know much about the physical nature of Paul, there are some things we know about him, but not too much. But what we do know about him is, chances are, Paul was not a very impressive man physically. Um, he was not someone that stood out. And probably more than that, he was someone that, uh, as he himself confessed, was not someone that really had the gift of preaching so much as the gift of writing. That Paul is much more powerful, it seems, in his writing than he was in his speaking. In fact, in Acts, there's testimony to that. He was speaking, and you remember this. Maybe some of you don't, but this oftentimes happens, which is why we don't have two-story buildings for churches and have windows where people can sit on them two stories up because of this very, very thing that happened. As Paul is preaching throughout the night, there was a young man who was sitting on the windowsill because he was trying to cool himself off. He falls asleep and falls out the window and dies how was the sermon today? <laughs> right? How was the sermon today? Woo! You should have been there. It was a sleeper. Right? And uh, luckily, Paul, through the work of the Holy Spirit, revives the young man and he, the man lives. Right? That was the most powerful thing. Right? It wasn't Paul's words. It's what he did through the Holy Spirit, that's probably what is most remembered. The book of Acts doesn't even write what he was talking about. It only writes about what actually happened and what he did in response. All right. But I love this passage because here Paul is just laying it out and he says, listen, I came to tell you what God thinks. I came to tell you what God thinks about you and about you and about all of you. And guess what? I did it in non-persuasive ways, in fact, I'll just admit it, I was probably a real stinker when it came to just speaking. It wasn't dynamic, it might have been monotone in presentation, it wasn't with any flair or any excitement or anything else like that, it was just simply me just being me, laying out the gospel message. I don't know about you, but for a preacher like myself, this gives me great hope, <laughs> right? Right? I don't know about, I, I, and you, you all may not realize this. I'll tell you now. Um, there, are some, there are a lot of Sundays I walk away thinking, oh, nailed that sermon. Got everything out that I wanted to get out. I had you in the palm of my hands. You were eating it up, right? No response. Like, I'm like, I gave you gold. I gave you truth. I gave you nuggets. And then there are other Sundays where I think, oh, man. I really missed the whole point of what I was trying to say. I really just messed that up. And there are those of you who come up and say, oh, that was a fantastic message, Pastor. Did you actually listen to what I was saying? Right? Did you actually hear what I was saying, or were you just being polite? But that's the irony, right? Is that I think there are some messages that can be preached that, that are just like, wow, that is powerful. And there's almost no response. And then there are other messages that might be preached either for myself or from others that you just, man, I just, this could be just awful or not very good or just not, not hitting it on all the right notes. And that's the one that lands. And now we know why. Paul says it's because of the spirit. It's because of what God did through this. It's it's not my words. It was rather the spirit working through these words That made all the difference Now All of us have opportunities to share the gospel all of us have the opportunity to tell others what god thinks of them And here's the thing it isn't my job. It isn't your job to save their souls Don't ever think of yourself so highly as though you are in the soul-saving business. That's a bit much, don't you think? Shake your hands, yes, right? (laughs) It is. We, rather, are in the preaching-sharing gospel business. Let's do that, and let's let the Holy Spirit save the souls. Can we agree on that? So let me just say this, church. If you've ever felt the pressure that, oh, I don't know what I'm going to say to this individual, this person just asked me why I believe in Jesus, or this person wants to know more about my faith, I don't know how I'm going to respond to them. Let me just say, respond in truth. Respond from where you are. Respond from your experiences. Respond from what the passages in the scriptures say about what Jesus thinks of them. Do that. And you might think, oh, I'm going to mess up. It's okay. It's okay. The Holy Spirit has this. The Holy Spirit has got this you can't mess up the only way you mess up is not sharing at all but share amen good you've got permission to go and share your faith let the Holy Spirit save souls let the Holy Spirit do that part now here's the question though what does God think of others what does God think of us and what does God think of others well there's a good hint, and I want to share it with you. A well-known passage, John 3, 16 and 17. And it says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who's everyone, everyone, right? Everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's the most well-known probably verse in all of scripture. Here's the one that comes after it, which I think is just as powerful. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. Amen. Amen. What does God think of us? He loves us. That's what God thinks of us. Now, there's an interesting theological phrase I'm going to share with you, and you will promptly forget it, but I'm going to share it nonetheless. There is a theological concept called penal substitution, right? Penal substitution is the idea that God, or rather Jesus, stood in our spot to take the punishment that we should have received. Jesus took it on Himself. Now, that, that, that's a you know not something that we should be too f- foreign or unfamiliar with. Here's the problem or could potential problem with that is sometimes I think when it comes to this concept of penal substitution, right? Penal system, you know, we're all, all that kind of justice jail, all that kind of stuff Um, is that sometimes I think we can, by we mean, meaning pastors like myself can sometimes present a picture of God being so angry with us that he is getting ready to just strike us. He's getting ready to just hit us because we deserve it because we have fallen because we have angered him because we are sinners in his sight and and he's just about he's got his hand ready to just all of a sudden deliver that blow and just at that moment jesus steps in takes the blow for us and we're like oh thank goodness jesus you saved me in other words that concept is that god is so angry with us that he sent that that no no he didn't send his son he killed his son That's one. I prefer the other concept based on John 3, 16 and 17. Is that God so loved us that he sent his son. That's what God thinks of us. Church, if you have ever encountered someone telling you that God is disgusted with you. That God wants nothing to do with you that you are beyond any sort of redemption at this point, that you are a lost cause, or that there is no hope for you. I want to tell you today, I don't think that's what God thinks of us at all. He loves you, and He loves me. He loves every single person on this planet. And we know this as Christ followers. We can tell other people, what God thinks of them. We can do that. And that is an awesome privilege. Now, why? Why can we do this? Here's why. We can do this because you and I can know what God thinks. You and I can actually know what God thinks. First Corinthians chapter two, moving on verses six through 13. And this is where the bulk of the passage is with what I think Paul is trying to get across. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom, which none of the rulers of this age has understood for if they have understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard and which we have not entered the human heart, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the spirit for the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among people knows the thoughts of a person except the spirit of the person that is in him? So also the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit.